Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Just for posterity, just to put it on the record so future generations listening to this will understand the context that this episode emerged in. Last night, Tim Allen was tweeting up a storm. I don't have any like particularly <laughs> clever take on this. I just I just want it on the record. He tweeted, finally, an honest progressive position, quote, short term demands, among them a progressive income tax, abolition of inheritances and public property, abolition of child labor, free public education, nationalization of the means of transport. Guess who wrote this? Luke, do you have any do you have any guesses? <laughs> All right. Uh, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, close. Very close. It was uh, Karl Marx, Communist Manifesto, Wikipedia. That was his next tweet. And Karl spelled with a C, which he corrected in the tweet after that. So, okay, can you explain to me, I'm glad you brought this up because, I mean, I, I saw those tweets last night like everyone else, but I don't really understand what he's doing here. I mean, because the first one I saw was the Karl Marx Communist Manifesto Wikipedia tweet. That just looked like one of those tweets where, you know, somebody who's bad at computers types some like types uh, a search into the wrong field and then they tweet it. Right. I don't know what was happening, but the tweet after that, he says, I am sure Mr. Marx would have made adjustments to his position had he been exposed to our country's advanced evolution of worker unions and our protection of child labor. So I'm actually not sure where Tim Allen stands on the issue of of either child <laughs> Tim, labor Tim, or Tim Allen uh, coming out uh, coming out against revolutionary socialism. They're taking a very Fabian social democratic position. The thing is, I'm uh, not sure if when he said finally an honest progressive <laughs> position. I'm not sure how sarcastic he's being. Well, if in the sort of Fox News reading of that, that's like doing that thing that, you know, Sean Hannity will do, where he puts up a bunch of stuff on screen and it's like, this is what AOC believes. And it's like, free healthcare and education for all, you know, and it's just then it's just a list of things that actually sound pretty good, even when Fox News tries to torque them. That's what it reads like to me. And then his final tweet was one of you tweeted which Marx brother was Carl. I burst out laughing, wished I had said that. And that's just very funny to me because it is, I don't know how a man can work in comedy for 40 years and have never heard the, my favorite Marx brother was Carl joke. Just imagine Tim Allen with all his, you know, millions sitting in a dark room, his face illuminated only by the light from his computer screen just firing off uh, tweets about Karl Marx. Very funny. In the trending tab on Twitter uh, last night, it said, you know, Tim Allen. And then underneath it, it said, you know, home improvement actor sparks discussion on communist manifesto after tweeting <laughs> quote from Karl Marx's Wikipedia page. You know, if I could send a screenshot of that headline to the year 1994. <laughs> you know what microaggressions are. It's the latest liberal attack at free speech. And a lot of fun if you do them right. Something that's very much in the news right now is kind of the emerging details about Joe Biden's transition team, cabinet appointments, stuff like that. Uh, I had originally thought this week might be a fun, uh, a fun week to go back to basics and do something like the war room 
you know, the D.A. Pennebaker uh, doc from the early 90s that stars uh, George Stephanopoulos and a friend of the show, James Carville, you know, a film that idealizes political staffers and, and kind of the backroom boys and, you know, gives you a peek behind the curtain to show, you know, show you the wizards who got Bill Clinton elected and all of the uh, the incredibly sophisticated tactics they use. We're not doing that. The main reason being, uh, I could not think of another film besides The War Room, and we can't really do... I mean, I think there's only ever been one film, uh, Michael Moore's Slacker Uprising, that we did twice. And that's because it's very near and dear to you know the founding of the show back in 2016. But if people have um, more recommendations about political staffer documentaries or anything from that world, please do send them. Yeah, I mean, I can't get enough. We haven't watched all of Al- Alexandra Pelosi's movies. I think she still has a few gems <laughs> left in her. I love stuff about political staffers, you know, because I, you know, I have been one at various points. And, you know, political staffing, I mean, which is kind of an umbrella term, you know, it can be an interesting job, but it's also the case that People both uh, in and outside of that world really kind of over-idealize it, treat it as a lot more exciting than it, you know, certainly usually is. Political staffing is typically an extremely mundane uh, affair, incredibly boring. Everyone imagines, you know, it's Toby and Josh eloquently shouting at each other, you know, in some episode of The West Wing. It is, uh, it is almost never like that. But something that uh, something that's come out this week, courtesy of Politico, uh, is that it sounds like neither Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren are going to be appointed to cabinet. Uh, womp womp. I don't find this particularly interesting. I mean, I've never expected either of them to be in cabinet. I mean, even Warren, who uh, I mean, did so much to try to ingratiate herself to Biden. I never really thought there was a realistic possibility of, of either of them. I mean, the Bernie is labor secretary thing. There was a pretty interesting debate, you know, over a Jacobin uh, with regards to this. Uh, I I think I personally come down on the side of uh, I don't think Bernie should be Biden's labor secretary. Fortunately, it's it's always been an abstract debate since I don't think uh, it was ever a realistic possibility. How seriously do you think he was in campaigning for that? Do you think there was a certain element of that that was almost like laying the groundwork for him to be an opposition force? Or am I creating a sense of 12-dimensional chess where there isn't one? I mean, I, I believe the campaign, uh, such as it was, began or was leaked to the press uh, before the actual election result, right? Mm-hmm. So before the balance of forces was really known. But yeah, that is kind of my reading of it. I mean, I feel like, you know, Bernie, for reasons that I truly do not understand, is able to like people like Biden, I think, on a personal level, which, you know, arguably hindered him during the primaries. But I think, you know, his political instincts are are extremely solid. And, you know, he I think he knows what Joe Biden's politics are. And he probably knows that uh, he didn't have a very good chance of uh, getting that role. But I think what's notable here, because it kind of harkens a lot of what is to come, the explanation for why Bernie's not going to be in cabinet, uh, Warren too, uh, also several other figures. Um, it's interesting, this political piece kind of collapses Democrats of different kinds, different political stripes into the same category of people who are being left out because basically the Democrats can't afford to have special elections in the House or the Senate in particular. So this is kind of being framed as a regrettable necessity. You know, we need you people to stay where you are because uh, if, for example, Elizabeth Warren leaves the Senate, there would be a special election in Massachusetts and actually, in the interim, Charlie Baker, the governor of Massachusetts, who is a Republican, um, it's a solidly blue state, this Democratic supermajority, but it has a Republican governor. Charlie Baker could, in theory, just fill that spot with a Republican, and then the Democrats would lose a vote in the Senate. 
the other problem with the Senate or the purported problem is that cabinet nominees go through the Senate. So Mitch McConnell could block them. Uh, so these two things sound like pretty ironclad reasons why Biden, you know, can't have the cabinet that, of course, we know he wants that he would appoint if it weren't <laughs> for these unfortunate obstacles. When you actually look at uh, both of these things, they fall apart pretty quickly. So first of all, you can appoint people to cabinet without putting them through the Senate. And we know this because Trump did it pretty regularly. A president can use something called the Vacancy Act to fill cabinet posts temporarily. They're called temporary secretaries, but it's over 200 days that they get. You know, I think it's almost a year and can be extended under certain conditions. Uh, and, and if you use the Vacancy Act, you, you don't have to go through the Senate at all. So if Biden really wanted to have Sanders or Warren in cabinet, uh, he could. As to what would happen if either Sanders or Warren vacated their seats, I mean, the Democrats, it seems to me, would have to, to muck up pretty badly to lose Senate special elections in Vermont and Massachusetts. And just finally, OK, what about the possibility of Charlie Baker giving the Republicans an extra vote in the Senate by just appointing someone to fill the vacancy? Well, uh, I didn't know about this until recently, but well, it turns out uh, there is a budget amendment being considered uh, or was considered this very week. I don't know what the status of it is currently. I don't think it's gone to a vote yet. In the state legislature in Massachusetts, there's a state representative, a Democrat from Amherst named Mindy Dom, and she has tabled a budget amendment which would restrict the governor to appointing uh, interim senators from the same party as whoever vacates the office. In other words, the Democratic supermajority in Massachusetts could pass uh, a budget amendment which would make it impossible for Baker to put a Republican in the seat. Now, local news in Massachusetts uh, seems to suggest that the House leadership in the state for the Democrats has been strangely silent about this budget amendment and whether or not they're going to support it. So kind of mirroring the strange dynamic that seems to pervade a lot of supposedly solidly blue states. You know, listeners from New York will know what I'm talking about. You know, Cuomo basically governing with Republicans for several years, despite it being a solidly blue state with a Democratic majority. Anyway, I think it's important to you know make the case at this early stage and just impress upon people. There's a lot that's going to happen between now and Inauguration Day that the Democrats are going to justify as regrettable necessity. We simply can't do the things that we want. And I think a useful exercise is to imagine what would have happened if Biden was going to inherit a Senate supermajority and a bigger majority in the House. Do we really think he would have appointed Bernie Sanders or even Elizabeth Warren to cabinet? I seriously doubt it. I think that the transition team you're seeing, which, you know, Biden can appoint whoever he wants to transition, I think it very much reflects Biden's own preferences. When you see people from Uber and Lyft and Amazon and J.P. Morgan Chase uh, on Biden's transition team. That's not something anyone forced Biden or the Democrats to do. We have enough experience with this by now to know that, that this is how they govern and this is how they want to govern. Georgia. Georgia. The whole In the weeks following the election, we see a lot of narratives springing up. One narrative that you see is how states that we consider to be red states are really just gerrymandered states. You can see this with a lot of the discourse surrounding the Democrats' surprise success in Georgia. Another competing and in some ways contradictory narrative that always pops up around this time is 
well, these stupid red states who vote against their interests, they're getting what they deserve. If their governors aren't responsive to the COVID crisis or what have you, whatever the crisis of the day is, that's a kind of karma, like sips tea. Yeah, well, actually, uh, I, you know, I was revisiting uh, the tweet that I think you were alluding to there, the uh, Charlotte Clymer tweet. She was actually sipping coffee in the tweet. Same thing. And this was an older tweet from, you know, before Georgia was good, right? Because if we all know, we all know that if a state votes 50.01% for the Democrat, it becomes good. So yeah, as she was reacting to a piece of news, Georgia verifies 1000 new COVID cases in 24 hours. By the way, did you, you saw her tweet this week where she's excited to serve in the military again now that now that the good guys are in charge, right? Yeah, the military is good again, folks. Hooray. You know, uh, I mean, that's just that's just one example. There, there was this, I think, since deleted tweet from the writer Don Winslow, Dear Texas, per MSNBC. You're running out of morgue space. You're on lockdown. Remember, you voted for Trump. All caps. Remember, Texas voted for Trump. The really heartbreaking one is the one from Marina Sirtis. Uh, so Counselor Troy from Star Trek. Texas is the first state to reach 1 million cases of COVID. They voted for at real Donald Trump. That's all. Um, and then, you know, elsewhere, Keith Olbermann was talking about, you know, we have to stop the welfare. That's his his word <laughs> to the financially failing red states. So all of this really harkens back to in 2016, you know, people will remember that Marcos Melitsis, the cutting edge, uh, you know, the tip of the spear for hip, dynamic, populist liberalism in the mid 2000s, uh, you know, when the blogosphere really took things over. If you don't know who Marcos Melitsis is, uh, you can go back and listen to our Netroots Damnation episode where we uh, where we talked about him. God, so many characters have come in and out of this <laughs> podcast, huh? <laughs> Yeah, a, a great many stars in, in, in our sky. But yeah, people will know Melitzis as uh, the Daily Costs, uh, just costs to his friends. You know, he wrote this thing after uh, after Trump's election. Be happy for coal miners losing their health insurance. They're getting exactly what they voted for, which is a headline that seems almost deliberately calculated or does seem deliberately calculated to sound as cruel as possible. Because, I mean, why would he select coal miners specifically? It's so naked. It's masked as kind of a disdain for Trump voters, but it's a disdain for working class people in general kind of hooked, you know, on coal mining, which is this, you know, retrograde thing from you know the 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 old america i really see this stuff through that lens you know this is cultural resentment for people who watch msnbc rather than fox news it's interesting for a few reasons i mean one is because liberalism today obsesses so much over how polarization is a problem you know actually there are no red states and blue states it's kind of a myth and if you know if the president just says enough bipartisan platitudes we can make it go away i mean that's what obama spent eight years trying to do basically dial down polarization dial down the culture war you know it didn't work but you can see how quickly that goes away when, for various reasons, uh, the same people want to direct anger across state lines at these very specific parts of the country, basically because they didn't vote for the Democrat. Even if you accept the basic moral framework of people getting what they deserve, which I don't, by the way, even if you accept the idea that Trump voters are these kind of irredeemable antagonists and anyone that votes Republican bad— it still doesn't make sense because when you factor in all of the voter suppression, 
the fact that lots of people simply by choice do not vote, the fact that there are lots of people that are not eligible to vote because they're not old enough. A minority of people in a state like Texas actually voted for Donald Trump. Doesn't even make sense. So at the same time, you know, they have this problem about there being no red states and blue states. Liberals for a long time have have accepted this basically Manichaean understanding of their own country where, you know, everything can be understood according to this duality. And the duality isn't really, I mean, it's, it's about conservative and liberal America But as you can really see with the tone of a lot of these tweets or the headlines like the one I quoted from 2016, the duality is really between, you know, us, the good ones who, you know, live on the coasts and the dumbass rubes that live in the south or fly over country, the hillbillies. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that people are saying this as the general trajectory of the Democratic voting coalition becomes whiter and more affluent. The two things are working in tandem. It's really not an accident. You know, of course, the country is uh, is very divided, but the Electoral College in particular, I mean, that thing that became bad after 2016 and is now good again since uh, Joe Biden won both the popular vote and the Electoral College. I mean, the whole phenomenon of red states and blue states is very much exaggerated um, at the presidential level by the Electoral College. Anyway, for all kinds of reasons, this is a really insidious way of thinking. You know, I'm not really in the business of giving Democrats political advice, but I mean, if you're if you're interested in winning these parts of the country where you're you're currently not talking down to them, talking down to millions of people in those states, including the ones who are literally voting for your candidates, is probably not a very good idea. And you know, if you're on the left, I would say that a very basic organizing principle. Uh, needs to be rejecting this uh, framework of kind of there being good states and bad states and moral desert is sort of apportioned to each by way of some karmic logic. Uh, I think rejecting that is, uh, is really, really important. Because actually, there are no red states and blue states. Those are lines on a map. There are actually just people living their lives. And the goal should be making all of those lives ones of freedom and dignity. The first thing we have to do is create a media ecosystem comparable to the one on the right that projects positive narratives and that makes them understand which party truly has their interests at heart. A party that wants to modernize the modern workforce. <laughs> a party that will bring them into the bold new millennium and infuse them with the skills that they need to survive and thrive in a competitive new world marketplace from the mind of david lynch comes a modern day masterpiece so startling so provocative so mysterious that it will open your eyes to a world you have never seen before she and warm a memory
movie this episode is David Lynch's classic Blue Velvet from 1986, a favorite of yours, mine, and everyone's, I think it's fair to say. Uh, I mean, maybe there are still some dissenting voices, but this movie has pretty much ascended to canonical status at this point. And, you know, you just you just argued persuasively that the heartland is not all that it appears in the media, and that's certainly a lesson that I took from this film. Uh, in, in what appears to be a placid language surface, there may be deep rot, there may be deep evil. The, the, the ants may be fighting each other under the well-manicured lawn. In, we're introducing a new character on the show, uh, 80s hack film critic to be played by Will. Uh, signing off, I'm Gene Siskel. <laughs> But actually, that's useful because, I mean, that is sort of, I mean, you've just given us the the kind of uh, surface level reading of the film, or rather the beneath the surface level reading of the film, which I think is incredibly wrong, although it's wrong in very interesting ways. And it's so very close to being right, yes. but it misses, it misses very important things about uh, this movie. Anyway, we've never done a David Lynch episode, and in a way, he's kind of a strange, you know, his work kind of fits perhaps awkwardly into the wider project of this show. But he's, you know, he's a favorite of uh, of both of ours, I think. I first watched this movie, you know, as is the case with, you know, several films we've done on the show. Uh, I first watched it with you. I think it's my favorite of Lynch's films. I mean, I certainly think it is the most Lynchian of Lynch films. It has a sort of magnum opus quality. Maybe a good place to begin, you know, as we often do, is by talking about our respective relationships with David Lynch and kind of where where we discovered him and what his work uh, means to each of us. So, I mean, have you been into, were you into David Lynch as a teenage cinephile? A little bit later on, the first one of his I ever saw, believe it or not, was The Straight Story, which I saw theatrically and which I liked uh-huh. very much, although that's a bit of an outlier in his work. Can I, I mean, I don't want to digress uh, immediately, but uh, can I just say that's a film whose reputation really annoys me because in fact I was just telling my girlfriend about it it is such a beautiful film and I feel like people have this almost condescending attitude towards it where they're like oh haha David Lynch directed just like a it's just like a normal movie and it's an outlier in his filmography and the thing is I mean that's kind of true but it is very Lynchian it's just Lynchian in a, di- in a different way the hyper real quality is just manifested to a lesser degree and he amps up the earnestness and kind of toned out, tones down the irony I mean he genuinely does love Americana and he loves people even if he's not exploring their quote unquote darker sides that much in the straight story I do think it is very much of a piece with his filmography but I remember watching some of his films in high school like Eraserhead and Mulholland Drive and not not quite getting it I think and then when I was in college I started to connect with him in a very big way and I think for me real entry point into Lynch was his kind of fucked up relationship with sex and women I think he is in his art a classic sufferer of and this is an an unhappy term to have to use but I am quoting what it's called on its Wikipedia page Uh, a classic sufferer of the Madonna whore complex, you know, and you see this all the time in his movies, the kind of um, separating of women into these two categories. And you can see his kind of weird relationship with sex as early as Eraserhead, which is, you know, very much a movie about this guy, the Lynch surrogate, who, of course, he has sex with his girlfriend, and of course, she gets pregnant. And of course, that resigns him to a life that he didn't want of fatherhood. 
you know, as someone as someone raised Catholic, I'm certainly not immune to the anxieties expressed in his films. I also think like Lost Highway is is rich in that kind of ugliness. Lost Highway is kind of like if an artist laid out all his ugliest and most grotesque thoughts on a slab and asked you to look at them. Oftentimes people want to put their best foot forward in their art, you know, to a fault, but but he really lays it all out there. And in addition to that, you know, a few episodes ago, we were talking about John Carpenter's Halloween, which we positioned as a fundamentally conservative movie because it's about the anxiety of this killer who may be representative of societal forces, drugs, the sexual revolution, etc. Not necessarily proactively conservative. We were kind of latently uh, yeah. not settled on that on that question. I just want to say that wasn't a criticism of the film, but you can go back and listen. No, we like Halloween very much. But, you know, one of the things that makes it scary is that suburbia is a sanctuary in that film. Suburbia is supposed to be safe. And for the movie to be scary, part of you has to kind of buy in on the idea that suburbia is safe. Why is it safe? Because of all these reasons. And I think that David Lynch kind of hits at some of those feelings in his work, too. I think it's difficult to place him politically. I don't think there is a director who better evokes a dreamscape than David Lynch. And at his best, his films really do feel like dispatches from the subconscious. You know, all this all this muck that we keep hidden there. I mean, I feel like I have a very personal relationship to Lynch's work. It's always interesting to me when I hear people who also connect to it, which appears to be a lot of people, especially these days, which makes me think that the anxieties that his films revel in, shockingly common, even in our um, enlightened society. Yeah, so to build on that, I think what attracts me to Lynch is this very peculiar and unique quality that seems to pervade his entire, you know, everything he creates, all of his movies and, you know, his TV show Twin Peaks as well. It might be useful at this early stage in the discussion to kind of table a definition of uh, the Lynchian. You know, it's funny, one of the uh, one of the other things that was a candidate for this week's show, which we will do at some point, possibly for a bonus episode, was the David Foster Wallace essay, Up Simba, which is the one about John McCain's 2000 presidential campaign, which is something that I think Will and I are keen to revisit because it's one of those things you read when you're 20 and like, wow, this is like writing has never been this good. And uh, we revisited a section of it uh, a few weeks ago, and it uh, it it really seems abysmal. So <laughs> we're going to revisit that at some point. David Foster Wallace also wrote a kind of novella-length essay about David Lynch, mostly about the film Lost Highway. I looked at it again. There are definitely things about the writing style that irritate me, um, but I do think he offers a pretty good definition of the Lynchian. Uh, he says an academic definition of Lynchian might be that the term refers to a particular kind of irony where the very macabre and the very mundane combine in such a way as to reveal the former's perpetual containment within the latter. There is a very strange quality to these movies, which is unlike anything else you'll see uh, really anywhere. I think it's something you might see in arguably a more sanitary form in some, you know, an early Quentin Tarantino or something like that. Who David Foster Wallace compares unfavorably to Lynch. Yeah, who he, he criticizes. There's a memorable bit in that essay where Wallace says that Reservoir Dogs and Blue Velvet both have memorable scenes involving disembodied ears. And Wallace says Reservoir Dogs is about the cutting, but Blue Velvet is about the ear, if that makes sense. Right. And, and actually, according to 
Lynch, the genesis of Blue Velvet is just, he thought of, you know, first just the idea of Blue Velvet, which is how the film opens, just kind of curtains made of Blue Velvet. And in the film, you know, Isabella Rossellini, who plays uh, Dorothy Valens, one of the main characters, uh, wears a dress made of Blue Velvet and and sings, uh, sings the song Blue Velvet. And I think then the ear came next, just the idea of a severed ear in a in a field, which is kind of the instigating event of this movie or one of them. And then uh, the song Blue Velvet came next. So I guess, uh, you know, this leads me to kind of a second thing that I like about Lynch's work, which is uh, his particular use of symbols and the fact that there actually is. I mean, this is kind of, I guess, the nerdier side of David Lynch, the one that informs, I mean, I don't listen to these, but, you know, all those Twin Peaks interpretation podcasts and things like that. But I I do get it. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Blue Velvet has less of this than a film like Mulholland Drive, which is full of kind of these visual clues and things. But his films are fun to watch for that reason as well, which is a more basic reason. Just to give you a lot of symbols to unpack, and there are a lot of visual uh, parallels that he draws that you know, to use a cliche, really get you thinking. <laughs> Maybe at this time, we'll just lay out the plot of Blue Velvet. It's set in the fictional small town of Lumberton, a very 50s by way of the 1980s American small town. The film opens symbolically, I think, with a heart attack of the protagonist's father while he's watering his lawn. Uh, the protagonist is Jeffrey Beaumont, played by Kyle MacLachlan college freshman back in his hometown plucky clean-cut american kid while wandering around an empty area finds a disembodied human ear in a patch of grass trying to solve the mystery of this ear jeffrey launches himself on a trail of intrigue where he eventually encounters two women who serve as a kind of point counterpoint in his life there is sandy played by laura dern high school senior very much the girl next door and she's the daughter of detective williams who's the uh the police officer who he goes to tell about the ear she becomes a love interest and also a partner in this mystery in one of the key lines of the film she tells him i don't know if you're a detective or a pervert as if these are two categories that can be cleanly cut and removed from each other The other woman is Dorothy Valens, played by Isabella Rossellini, dark-haired singer at a seedy nightclub who lives in a very seedy apartment. The police are aware of her and her possible connection to the ear, but Jeffrey decides to investigate himself. This is after Sandy, who overhears things uh, said in her house because her dad is a police officer. Um, You know, she gives him tidbits of information, including the location of the apartment complex where Dorothy Valens lives and the fact that uh, the police think there's this connection with the ear. And at this stage in the movie, both Sandy and Jeffrey Beaumont are really presented as these kind of figures of innocence. I mean, I guess Sandy largely stays that way. But it needs to be said, and I think it's very integral to the film, that Jeffrey Beaumont's entire mission here and the way he goes about it is... I mean, it's insanely fucked up what he does. So initially his plan, and you know, it's discussed in this incredible kind of hyper real dialogue, you know, where like they're sitting at the diner and he says, you know, there are opportunities in life for gaining knowledge and experience. Uh, But then what he's proposing to do is masquerade as a pest control man, look around her apartment. And then when he's there, he takes her keys and goes and sneaks in and hides in the closet later that night. So in Jeffrey's own conception of what he's doing, you know, he's just the plucky college kid whose intentions are good and is innocently chasing a mystery. But that's not actually what's happening here. 
I think that scene, uh, that original scene where Kyle MacLachlan and Laura Dern first meet each other, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's an example of the incredibly strange way Lynch writes dialogue and the way that he has the actors deliver it. Any snow kid lived there had the biggest tongue in the world. (laughs) (laughs) What happened to him? I don't know. I moved away. All my old friends are gone. You know the chicken walk? What's that? Just this incredibly banal back and forth about the the high school that they both uh, go to or that that he did go to and she's a senior at. Later, there's that incredibly funny scene of where they're at the club and and they're sipping from their beers. Man, I like Heineken. You like Heineken? Uh, Well, I never really had Heineken before. You never had Heineken before? My dad drinks Bud. King of beers. So after Jeffrey sneaks into Dorothy's apartment, you know, this is where I guess the film takes takes its darker turn, which it mostly retains until the very end. Can I just say, picking up on what you said about how fucked up his little mission is, I was reminded on this viewing, weirdly enough, of Taxi Driver. Jeffrey gets into a strange relationship with Dorothy Valens where he kind of imagines her much in the way that Travis Bickle did for Jodie Foster, but also he bears witness to the relationship between Dorothy and Frank, played by Dennis Hopper. Who is absolutely terrifying in this movie. A mob boss figure who has kidnapped Dorothy's husband and child and has now enslaved her into a kind of sadomasochistic sexual relationship. And I suppose it's worth saying here, if you haven't seen Blue Velvet and you're thinking about watching it, I mean, it's a film I would recommend, but it is it is quite disturbing and there's a lot of ugliness. The scene where Frank sexually assaults Dorothy Valens is maybe one of the most disturbing scenes in, in any movie. It's, it's deeply upsetting. What I think is particularly disturbing about it is, you know, when I was a teenager, I think I, I bought into the line espoused by certain hackier critics that this was a movie of basically two tones, darkness and light. And then getting older, I realized that no scene is entirely light. No scene is entirely dark. The sadomasochistic scenes with Dennis Hopper and Isabella Rossellini, in addition to being extremely upsetting for what is depicted, are upsetting for the slightly ironic way, the, the, the slightly comic tone that David Lynch brings to them. I think that's exactly right. And I want to read again from the, uh, the DFW essay here. He writes, Lynch's idea that evil is a force has unsettling implications. People can be good or bad, but forces simply are. And forces are, at least potentially everywhere, evil for Lynch thus moves and shifts, pervades. Darkness is in everything all the time, not, quote, lurking below or, quote, lying in wait or hovering on the horizon. Evil is here right now, and so are light, love, redemption, etc., I think this is really key to understanding the movie, and I think this is uh, what the kind of surface-level interpretation of it that's kind of the, the common one really misses. It's very easy to draw, you know, these kind of uh, very simple binaries between Sandy and between Dorothy Valens. Between the world that's depicted in the initial kind of frames where it's this white picket fence and, you know, it's this small town and firemen are waving, you know, flowers everywhere. And then the Jeffrey's father has a heart attack and the camera dives down into the ground and you, you can see, you know, the world of nature, carnal, you know, insects devouring things, etc., 
the family dog aggressively in a kind of almost predatory way, gnawing at the hose in the hand of Jeffrey's dad, who's lying passed out on the ground. You know, in the kind of most basic reading, you know, there's a world of good, which is the world of white picket fences and safety and, you know, this kind of uh, idyllic suburban Americana. And then there's the seedy underbelly. But really, I think what makes this film work is that its project is to suggest that the dualism isn't really there. These things are kind of coexistent. And that we all have the capacity for great evil in all of us. You know, Jeffrey is the audience surrogate character, at least if you're an audience member like me, you know, uh, a, a white male. On the face of it, he's a sympathetic character, a real clean-cut, all-American boy, and a rescue mission of a victim like Dorothy Valens, on the face of it, has a certain nobility and yet he's as attracted by Frank Booth, really, as he is about being a rescuer. Uh, he doesn't want to admit it to himself, but he sort of longs for the kind of power that Frank Booth has over her. And then later in the film, when Dorothy Valens invades his real life, when she's not somebody who he's sort of compartmentalized, as people so often do with their sexual fantasies, he and everyone else is sort of confronted with the fact that this is really a part of him. Yeah, I think I think that's a really important point, right? It's not that uh, there is the real world and then there's the fantasy world. The point is that both worlds, such as they are, the dichotomy isn't really there. Both of them are just different kinds of fantasies. It's not as if at the end of the film, the natural order is being restored. It's just that a different fantasy, the fantasy that was in originally disrupted by the events at the start of the film is being restored. And from the perspective of Jeffrey Beaumont's character, the most disturbing moments of the film are the ones where the fantasy of his own innocence collapses. Lots of people have, have focused on the line that Frank Booth delivers after he kidnaps Jeffrey Beaumont. Um, he turns around in the car and it's filmed, I think, very intentionally uh, from Jeffrey's kind of visual perspective. And Frank Booth says, you're like me. Um, and then Jeffrey Beaumont lashes out and punches him in the face. So it's not as if there's kind of a world of innocence that's disrupted by the seedy underbelly of this town. And then, you know, on the other side, the seedy underbelly, which is its kind of moral and ethical opposite. These things are coexistent and in some ways symbiotic with one another. Even Frank Booth, who is such a disturbing character and, you know, the way Dennis Hopper plays him, so deeply sinister and frightening. But there's even a certain duality to him insofar as when we see him, he's usually being violent in one way or another. But in his violence, he kind of both dominates and submits. He is both a terrifying adult man and somebody who, in the act of being violent, also makes these very childish noises, talks about mommy and daddy, and has this strange breathing device. Which places the audience in an awkward situation because you're not sure whether you're kind of allowed to laugh at it. You're not sure if by laughing at it, you're minimizing the, the awfulness of what's being depicted, which is one of the things that critics of this movie at the time really bristled against. Now, there are all kinds of possible interpretations of this film, but here there's a very obvious Freudian one, and I, th I think there's a, a fair amount of textual evidence for that reading. Frank Booth's breathing device is very much supposed to mirror, you know, there's even, I think, one visual motif that draws the parallel directly. Jeffrey's father in the hospital with the device they've given him to help him breathe. 
I know that the uh, the film critic Todd McGowan, you know, has a whole kind of uh, reading of this movie as being about the displaced father, uh, which is quite interesting. But suffice to say, both spheres of Jeffrey's fantasy life, both realities converge. I want to ask you, Luke, about a scene that was a real bone of contention for a lot of critics at the time, where Dorothy basically appears naked in public in Jeffrey's life at the end. Um, you know, Roger Ebert was the most famous detractor of this film, but there were other detractors too. And when you look at their reviews, it's actually easy to forget now that Lynch is such a like sainted figure almost, how contentious he was at the time, and particularly in the decade or so after this movie. A scene like this is so is so painful to watch that there was a lot of bad faith in Lynch's critics, a sense that by mixing comedy and horror in this way, he was sort of minimizing the pain of the horror. You know, needless to say, it, you know, the scene you're talking about is uh, is a really disturbing one. I think it's important to separate different criticisms of Lynch um, because there are a lot of uh, responses to his movies that I think fall under the banner of people just not getting it. But I, I think there are some pretty worthy feminist criticisms of this film. Todd McGowan, who I alluded to earlier, kind of pushed is back on those by arguing that that Isabella Rossellini's character is really the central figure in in the film, not Kyle MacLachlan's, which is which is an interesting premise. I do think particularly the way that uh, Blue Velvet treats Sandy, Laura Dern's character. I mean, she is just sort of a foil for for Jeffrey Beaumont, right? The film doesn't give her a lot of agency or whatever. Like she has the innocent quality that Jeffrey has, but then it's it's not really ever complicated beyond that. Like she's just kind of an extension of his idyllic fantasy version of Lumberton, isn't she? So I'm sympathetic to that. I've never liked Ebert's response to the to this particular scene because I think that it just seems that he's revolted by it. He does a particular thing where he's revolted by it, but he needs to find a kind of moral justification for being revolted by it. And so he takes the cause of, of saying that Lynch took advantage of Isabella Rossellini somehow, that he that he victimized her in a way, that he put her through this awful experience without really taking it seriously, which I think is wrongheaded for a lot of obvious reasons. But I think that when the Lynch backlash struck in the 90s, I think a lot of people kind of felt this way because Lynch dealt with such difficult and ugly subject matter that there was a suspicion among some people that they were being led down the rabbit hole and forced to deal with this this very ugly stuff by somebody who didn't fundamentally take it seriously. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, this brings us to various readings of the film that are clearly just people not getting it. And, you know, and this extends beyond Blue Velvet. I remember Robert Roger Ebert's review of Mulholland Drive. I mean, he li- he kind of likes it, but I don't think he really receives it for what it is, which is actually a fairly, it's fairly coherent, I think. He just sees it kind of tonally. But just turning back to Blue Velvet, there was one review when it came out which criticizes the film for kind of uh, inconsistency, pointing to things like the fact that, you know, Lumberton seems to be both a small town, but then also a big city. Now, I think that's completely wrong. And this is a good opportunity to talk about the setting for the movie. To quote from uh, Christine McKenna, who writes on Lynch, talking about Lumberton and the kind of wider uh, settings of the movie, the look of a Lynch film is largely shaped by Lynch's unique relationship with time and the fact that he feels no fidelity to historical accuracy in regard to period styles. In Lynch's realm, America is like a river that flows ever forward, carrying odds and ends from one decade into the next, where they intermingle and blur the dividing lines we've invented to mark time. 
Blue Velvet is set in some indeterminate period where time has collapsed in on itself. At the Slow Club, where Dorothy Valens performs, she sings at a vintage microphone from the 20s, and her place in the Deep River apartment smacks of a 30s Art Deco set from The Thin Man. She has a television with a 50s rabbit ear antennae. Arlene's, the Lumberton Diner, where Jeffrey and Sandy conspire, also evokes the 50s, but Jeffrey's pierced ear and Sandy's clothing are distinctly 80s. Sandy, a teenager in what are ostensibly the 80s, has a poster of Montgomery Clift on her bedroom wall, and classic American cars roam the streets of Lumberton. You know, Lumberton, as Todd McGowan points out, is it a small town? Is it a big city? Well, it's it's both. I mean, it as he puts it, it has in kind of the one fantasy, the the idealized version of Lumberton. It is a small town, but then in kind of the nightmare version of Lumberton, which is coexistent with the other version, you know, it's a big city and it has the problems of big city. It has, you know, organized crime and murder and things like that. So these are not actually inconsistencies in the movie. They're part of its kind of fundamental texture and what it's doing. And just, again, on the theme of everything intermingling and there really being no hard parameters for either setting or or individual characters, you know, the soundtrack to this film is incredible. You know, all these songs from different decades that give the movie simultaneously different vintage feels. Perhaps the most notable one being uh, the Roy Orbison song, In Dreams, which I think revealingly, in one of the many terrifying scenes in the movie, after Frank has kidnapped Dorothy Valens and Jeffrey Beaumont and taken them to wherever he's holding her son, you know, there's a kind of party going on, and and this Roy Orbison song starts to play. uh, And he initially appears very moved by it. You know, he's almost, you know, weeping to this quite sappy piece of Americana. And then very suddenly he gets quite angry and he turns it off. I don't know if this is a point that'll go anywhere, but did you notice how kind of sexually ambiguous or even kind of like gender fluid looking how a lot of people in that scene looked? Just the kind of way they dressed and the affect they had. I'm not here to accuse Lynch of being like a reactionary in that sense. I just feel like there's a weird sense of almost sexual menace in that scene, particularly in the use of a Roy Orbison song, which is like bedrock, kind of like Americana. But what's it all about? It's about a romantic fantasy that's happening in dreams, right? And and so I think it makes the perfect ironic counterpoint to this very disturbing party that seems to both uh, include members of organized crime and also just people who happen to be there and look like they just sort of never leave this this room. One of the peculiar things about the movie is how it ends with a sense of normalcy restored. Even after everything we've seen, you know, we've seen that the town's institutions, its police force even, have been corrupted. Oh, not even even the police force is corrupt? Get out of here. Even, even our guardians, the people who protect us. We've seen these disturbing scenes of sexual assault, and yet Dorothy is... Okay, I guess I am getting into spoiler territory here, aren't I? Mm-hmm. Dorothy is reunited with her child, and... Sandy and Jeffrey are married, it seems, or or at least together. Jeffrey's father, I think also very importantly, has recovered. And you see him in the yard saying, I feel better now. And just you know, <laughs> waving as everybody smiles and looks on. Right. And that really adds to the Freudian uh, reading of the film, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. That the nightmare father figure, uh, Frank Booth, is, is gone. And the father figure that sustains the other fantasy and is kind of essential to it, he's been restored. The old order is basically restored. And the meaning of it is so on the surface that there's not a lot to tease out of it is there no although i do think at the end you know the film gives us this unforgettable image of the robin you know robins having been a part of a dream that uh sandy recounts much earlier in the movie in the dream there was our world and the world was dark because there weren't any robins 
and the robins represented love. And for the longest time, there was just this darkness. And all of a sudden, thousands of robins were set free. And they flew down and brought this blinding light of love. And it seemed like that love would be the only thing that would make any difference. So what I love about that is, you know, it's so, uh, I mean, it's actually so kind of tacky and, and, and heavy handed to the point where it becomes really impossible to take seriously. And yet because of the very strange tone of the film, it works. And returning to the end of the film, you get this image of uh, the robin on the windowsill as everybody looks on and smiles. But of course, the robin has a bug in its mouth. So I think that's supposed to symbolize how actually the restoration of, of this particular dream, this particular fantasy, there's an asterisk on it. You know, it's just an ellipsis. It's not a period at the end of the film. And then Jeffrey's mother or grandmother eats something, <laughs> which looks like it could be a bug. I think there are a lot of clues like that that Lynch drops into his films, which, you know, there's no definitive answer, but it certainly could be that. So I think the film's ending is actually in some ways as ambiguous as kind of its middle section. Part of what is uh, obscure and elusive about Blue Velvet, uh, just like all of David Lynch's films, uh, is that his own process is so difficult to understand. I mean, he uses transcendental meditation in some way. He, re- he has some, some method of prying into his own subconscious, and he kind of finds things there, and then he renders them, it seems, with remarkable clarity he talks about it as if there's no process at all um which seems a little bit disingenuous don't you think he (laughs) he wrote that whole book catching the big fish about how by meditating that's how he gets all his ideas and it's like tapping into this subconscious and and you know he's just a conduit for this stuff Well, it's funny, you know, uh, his attitude in relation to Blue Velvet, both on the set and kind of, I think, afterwards, how he's talked about it seems so different to the one that the actors had, because Kyle MacLachlan found parts of this film very difficult to act in. And he describes himself as being absolutely in awe of Isabella Rossellini's performance, which is a completely fearless performance. You know, uh, he's quoted somewhere as saying, I was a little bit in awe of her. And of course, before we began shooting, I was intimidated knowing I was going to have to do these intense nudes scenes with her there's one scene where i had to get completely undressed in front of isabella and when we shot it i kept repeating to myself you're not really here you're somewhere else at the moment it's just a body don't even think about the fact that you don't have any clothes on um and then he talks about the scene where her character asks jeffrey to to hit her and he says i didn't actually hit her but the fact that i had to go through the motion of hitting her was upsetting when jeffrey's in his room at home later and realizes what has taken place, he breaks down and those scenes were challenging. I trusted David to guide me through them. You know, I think Rossellini uh, also found the film uh, somewhat difficult, the character somewhat difficult to get inside of, although it doesn't come through in her performance. It's absolutely an incredible performance. This film, of course, also features Dennis Hopper, whose reputation, as I understand it, was, was at a pretty low ebb at this point in his career, a lot of people were worried about having him on set, but apparently he he mostly was on pretty good behavior. He was very professional. He was kind of frustrated with actors, other actors uh, getting lines wrong and things like that. 
And uh, one person who worked on the film was quoted as saying that he was kind of the most with it member of the cast at a lot of times. But anyway, amidst all of this, Lynch apparently just maintained a sunny disposition the whole time. He apparently uh, rolled around the set on a pink bicycle with streamers attached to the handlebars for some reason with his pockets full of peanut M&Ms, which is one of those things that's so weird it kind of sounds made up, although I don't doubt it's true. Isabella Rossellini uh, describes David Lynch as being a very happy person. She said, I've never met anyone as serene as, as he is. Uh, Laura Dern uh, agrees, and she says David would say meditation is the source of his happiness, and I'm sure that's true. I would add, though, that I think part of his happiness has to do with the fact that he places no limits on himself as a creative person. There's a lot of self-judgment and shame in our culture, and David doesn't have any of that. He makes what bubbles up out of his brain, and that is part of his joy. It is very funny, given the how dark the subject matter of a lot of Lynch's films are, that whenever you see him in interviews, you know, he has this kind of aw shucks persona. And to some degree, I think that's calculated. In that book, Catching the Big Fish, there's a section in there where he says, he says something like, one day I picked up a copy of the King James Bible and I flipped to a random page and I found a passage that was the exact meaning of Eraserhead. I'll never say what it was. And, you know, that's like him being a little bit of a troll. And I think that's a side of his public persona that on the one hand has been very fruitful to the cultivation of his brand over the years. Uh, and on the other hand, has been a source of frustration for a lot of people where they can't tell to what extent he's trolling. And that adds to a certain skepticism of his work that was particularly prevalent in the 90s. Like, does this guy really take this stuff seriously? I think it's become clear over time that we don't really have to worry to what extent he's trolling. Even if you have the bad faith reading that he's trolling, quote unquote, I think that can be integrated with your enjoyment of the films. I know David Foster Wallace in that essay, in a particularly famous part of that essay, he takes Lynch to task for using Richard Pryor in about 30 or 40 seconds of Lost Highway. Richard Pryor at this point was suffering pretty severely from multiple sclerosis, and David Foster Wallace felt that he was kind of like taking advantage of this poor man, using him as a, as a kind of shock value prop, and, and he said something like, this is when I like Lynch the least. And, you know, I, I think maybe Wallace has a point, but it also seems part and parcel of what's what's good about his films, which is that they are so unguarded. They are such like wallows in in the subconscious. Uh, I don't know if I'm fully making sense here anymore or if I've drifted off into some strange territory. <laughs> As usual on the podcast, you forgot that we're recording and you've started daydreaming again. <laughs> Can't help it if I 